0: Hello everyone, this is Homo Juridicus, an ongoing conversation that analyzes law and society and power and politics from philosophical, sociological, and legal lenses. This podcast is informed by scholarly research made accessible for public discussion by PhD candidate Josh Caffrey and civil rights and criminal defense attorney Cameron Bedard. Our aim is twofold. First, we seek to situate current events within a rich discourse that draws on fields of philosophy, sociology, and law. Second, Homo Juridicus is a real-time critique of law, society, power, and politics. This podcast engages compelling voices from radical and heterodox traditions, drawing upon their wisdom to diagnose the situation as such, While creating a forum to expand the imaginary and explore real alternatives. Today we're going to um, start off with a conversation that really begins with um, due process, constitutionality, and draws some um, draws upon some of the consequences that will come out of the Dobbs uh,
1: opinion that we saw from the Supreme court last month. Yeah. Um, And just to be clear, the Dobbs opinion um, decided on June 24th. So I think we want to talk about the actual opinion written by Samuel Alito, but also I wanted to talk a little bit about the concurring opinion by um, justice Thomas as well. uh, And what the implications of that are for substantive due process. Cause I think Thomas is, far more radical than um, the Alito opinion. So it's kind of like, where is this court going to be heading? Um, and what would that look like with a conservative? What kind of conservatism are we looking at? That's kind of one of the questions that I am in in, in particular interested in, in asking and looking at. So yeah, yeah sure. uh, Cam, maybe you could walk us through uh, just some of the basics of the opinion and um, yeah, like the the basics of the opinion, and also we can talk a little bit later about what the implications of that are for for future cases, uh, for the Griswold case, and um, yeah, absolutely, other substantive due process, um, right? So that
0: that's probably a good place to to begin substantive due process and what it is. So just for starters, substantive due process really is the principle that. The Fifth and Fourteenth Amendments um, of the United States Constitution protect certain fundamental rights from government interference. Um, Specifically, the Fifth and Fourteenth Amendments prohibit the government from depriving a person in the text of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. So the big question under substantive due process, um, you know, that, that we'll explore in this episode is, you know, what what are these fundamental liberties? Um, because these fundamental liberties don't appear in the text of the
1: Constitution. Right. So uh, maybe you can go into a little bit more detail. So uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but the substantive due process is kind of a twofold process one you have um an interpretation of a liberty that is a right to privacy that allows uh, pregnant persons to get an abortion right for, so that's example, the, exactly. for example yeah for the dobbs opinion um so that's the kind of the first thing that it establishes is an, a, a substantive interpretation of that right as a, a kind of liberty and the other process that um it's is established under substantive due process is that once that liberty is established then states can't violate that without due process of the law
0: exactly yeah
1: so so let's
0: let's go into um sort of these two categories of how we there there are two categories rather um about what constitutes a a fundamental liberty so for starters um fundamental liberties exist within the Bill of Rights itself. So the first eight amendments of the Bill of Rights establish fundamental liberties. Those fundamental liberties are those that a person cannot be deprived of without the due process of law. So think First Amendment, right to free speech, um, right to uh, practice one's religion, Second Amendment, right to bear arms. Um, Fourth Amendment, right to be free from unreasonable searches and seizures, Fifth Fifth Amendment, um, the rights that, uh, Fifth Fifth Amendment is the other um, due process process clause, and then the Sixth Amendment uh, provides and sets forth all of the rights that the accused would have, um, the right to a jury trial, the right to um, a fair trial, the right to a speedy trial, etc., But then there's another category of rights that an individual has. And that category of rights um, is really where we get into this interpretive analysis. So that category of rights is the kind of right that is deeply rooted in history and tradition. Um, This is one whereby a right that is deeply rooted in the history and tradition of the United States, and is so the Supreme Court has said so essential to the scheme of ordered liberty that it is recognized as a as a right. Those are the other categories of um, of rights that are that are fundamental. Okay,
1: right. And or I keep seeing that word ordered liberty, and I'm just like, what are they talking about? With like, I I know what they're talking about, but I just it's one of those floating signifiers that like Supreme Court opinions like kind of slip in like, oh, we we are all on the same page about what this means. It's like, right, no, it's that's, that's actually a contested thing, guys. You can't just you can't just throw that in and, and pretend like we're all on the same page with it. Right. But, yeah. We, we can go into order? that later. Yeah, yeah sure. Sure. Whose order.
0: Um, But but anyhow, so the 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 way to think about this, just simply put, um, first eight amendments of the Bill of Rights. Um, or rights that are deeply rooted in history and tradition. And this is, before we get into Dobbs, let's just talk about what happens once one of these rights is, is recognized. Because the moment one of these rights is recognized and a person, um, a, a person cannot have that right deprived without the due process of law. So that means that the government cannot regulate, the government cannot prohibit, the government cannot infringe upon those rights with laws unless um, the government regulation meets certain what, what, what are called standards of review. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I don't know if you want me to to, to get into that. Yeah,
1: I, I think it would be worth talking about what these standards of review are because, um, yeah, I mean, they're like <clears> – <throat> The Supreme Court, as a legal institution, has kind of um, formal safeguards for like that sets its parameters of what it can do and how it does it. Yeah. So these processes are very important, right? And I think that this is one of the things that doesn't get talked about much are the kind of um, these um, tests that they use for exactly judicial tests. review. Yeah. Um, and and a lot of these tests actually arise in court cases like they're made up on the spot essentially they're not written into the constitution or anything like that so it's it's also really important just to understand the basic i mean the basic idea of constitutional law is that it's not just the constitution but it's all of the precedents that have been set by the supreme court as well and in a common law system that's actually really important because there's a tremendous amount of of um of judicial discretion that goes along with that. Right. So, yeah. you know, whenever you talk about the constitution, if, if you're talking to your, to your uh, you know, don't tread on me, uncle, QAnon <laughs> uncle, who's just like, yeah. oh, the, the constitution, the text says this. Well, the constitutional law is much more complex than that. And if they don't recognize that, then they don't actually understand constitutional law, right? Yeah, so yeah. and they I, certainly don't
0: what, understand standards of review. Yeah, uh,
1: and so and that's <laughs> and that's really important to keep in mind because like, you know, these again, these standards are established in court cases. Right. And then those kind of set a precedent for later court cases where justices have to follow those standards as well. Yeah. Um, Or, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but those standards could also be like, well, we need to create a new standard, basically like that standard wasn't good enough. So these things change over time. Right. And I
0: I like the way you described it as a test. So let's just go through like the three basic tests um, that Exist when when the justices when the judges are exercising judicial review. So the first and most basic test is what's called rational basis or rational basis review. This is the most forgiving, and essentially under rational basis review, um, a person a litigant challenging the law on constitutional grounds bears the burden of proving that it does not bear a rational relation to any conceivably legitimate governmental purpose like even like a uh, hypothetical one um, I mean with vanishingly few exceptions pretty much all laws satisfy this standard so if the government for example is trying to um, regulate something that is within its so-called like police powers and think you know when I say police I'm not necessarily referring to cops, I'm just talking about the powers of the state to police the general welfare of
1: of the state. Um, Think about some organized society in a given way. Yeah, right.
0: So so think about a, a regulation as simple as, you know, like, regulating um where car where cars can park on street sweeping days. Mm-hmm. Um, where, you know, uh, effluence running from sewer into a water treatment facility. Um, you know, uh like how how much effluence must be um you know, how, how much effluence eff- must be regulated, um, things like that, things that come into just the general welfare, health and safety, um, things of that nature. So the second standard of review is um, more exacting and that's called intermediate scrutiny. And I mean, the way you can think of that is intermediate scrutiny, it raises the stakes, you know, it's beyond rational basis, and under intermediate scrutiny, it gets a little bit more complicated for the government to regulate something. So, for example, the burden now shifts to the government to justify the law at issue. And under this standard, which is used, among other things, to evaluate you know, what are called um, classifications. So gender is a classification, for example. Anytime the government tries to make some type of regulation that... Um, is based off of a person's gender. A law must serve what is called an important governmental objective and the discriminatory means employed must be substantially related to the achievement of those objectives. Further, the government must carry out the burden of showing an exceedingly persuasive justification for the classification at issue. Um, Now, getting to the standard of review that applies to fundamental rights, and then we can kind of return to our conversation on Dobbs, Josh, Um, the most exacting standard of review and the one that it does in fact apply in the Dobbs case is what's known as the strict scrutiny test, all right? And under strict scrutiny, the government must prove that the challenge law is both narrowly tailored and the least restrictive means available to further a compelling governmental interest, right? And anytime, and this is important, anytime the government, local, state, federal, tries to regulate a fundamental right, or tries tries to regulate something that impinges on a fundamental right, this exacting standard must be applied and the court and the court must do the strict scrutiny test.
1: Right. Well, I'm, I'm a little bit curious with strict scrutiny is, is like, how do you establish what is a compelling state interest? Yeah. yeah I mean, that's, that's, that's a pretty extra legal thing. And I, and I only mentioned that because of the language in Dobbs that presents itself as neutral and not extra legal and all of this kind of yeah. uh, bullshit basically that I, that right, I want right. to get into later. Like nobody's ever neutral guys. Come on. let's. Well, but it's, but it's objective. Let's, no. let's drop that myth. Let's move beyond that myth. And just, you know, we have a conservative court. We all know this, like, stop, stop bullshitting us guys. Um, but no, like it, it does raise an interesting question, right? So there is, the state has a compelling interest to protect life, right? To make sure that its citizens are safe and secure in, you know, their their person essentially. And when they go out into public spaces, that kind of makes sense. Right. Um, but when you get into, I mean, yeah, the, the Dobbs opinion I think is getting a little bit tricky because you're kind of, protecting one life at the expense of another and so where where does that balance at the expense expense of the mothers at the expense of the pregnant person exactly but it's, it's kind of like balancing one life against another right so how do we where's the compelling state like how do you justify one over the other in a neutral objective way you know what i'm saying like how does how does that happen um or can it happen even
0: So, I mean, and this has been the fight since Roe up until, you know, it was overturned in DOPS. I mean, we have seen, um, you know, states since 1973 try to limit and place burdens on women um, to protect, you know, to protect fetal life. And so the, the balancing has really been done in case after case. Uh, like ba- based on this, like undue burden test, which is sort of like this subtest in strict scrutiny, but um, it's really the, it's really one of the tests that applies specifically when we are dealing with a st- with a government, typically state governments, um, attempts to to regulate abortion, right? Because mm. it in Roe, going back to the whole fundamental, um, going back to the whole fundamental liberty aspect um, of this discussion. Roe recognized what? A fundamental liberty to privacy and autonomy and really the right to the the right, the constitutional right to have an abortion. Mm -hmm. But since Roe, states have been um, kind of walking this fine line between, okay, sure, there's a constitutional right to an abortion, but back to your point. Um, there's also, you know, according to like, you know, some of the red states, uh, that are trying to regulate this, there's also this right that they are trying to assert exists
1: for, um, for the fetus as well. Right. So, uh, just to be clear, their definition of the fetus is as a person and yeah. therefore it deserves the rights that every other person does. So that's, that's an important, uh, like fe- fetal per- fetal personhood. Right. Um, that's, but that's an important, like, discursive kind of disagreement i think and one that and uh, i've never found
0: ir- fetal, fetal personhood
1: anywhere in the constitution josh which is- <laughs> yeah no yeah no man that's the constitutional protection for sure well i i think that raises the, the interesting point though that dobbs isn't necessarily saying that abortion is illegal they're making the case that it's not constitutionally protected and that it should be up to the states. democratic body. It should be up to the states and to the the democratic, um, you know, bodies of those states to decide that. Which again raises a really interesting question of, like, with gerrymandering and the problem of representation. Like, shouldn't you have an actually like functioning democracy for those? you know, for that to happen. But, you know, the Supreme Court is obviously very silent about what, <laughs> what qualifies as a, a functioning democracy, right? They don't, that's not their question that they're concerned with. But that's, that's kind of the reality that we're facing, right? Is that they're throwing it back to the states. And these states have, and you know, this go this goes for both parties, both parties gerrymander to stay in power, but I, I think it, um, you know, increasingly, uh, red states are, um, have taken off the, the gauntlet and and really tried to reshape districts to to stay in power so that uh, effectively, you know, governors don't win the popular vote, but they somehow say, stay in power, right? Yeah. Um, so this yeah, is and kind and of a one, problem. That yeah, that's one hell
0: of that. a conception of democracy too, which we yeah. should explore on, you know, future episodes. But Absolutely. Yeah.
1: But it, yeah. so it sounds okay right throwing it back to the states into democratically elected officials right Except. i think in a in a lot of instances we could agree on that however like what does that look like in right. practice like in reality right and that's where you get into the like oh that's you know um these red states also want to get rid of voting rights so <laughs> maybe they <laughs> maybe we shouldn't uh be giving them that much power right yeah,
0: and, and so th- this is this is where things get sticky. And yeah. um, in leaving the ability to regulate abortion, quote unquote, to the people, which is to the states, what has essentially happened is we now have a landscape where, you know, 25, 26 states can have very significant life altering regulations that, compromise a woman's ability to exercise uh, autonomy, to exercise Mm -hmm. control over her body, over her decision-making, over her volition, over her freedom, over her dreams, aspirations, hopes. And now, because we are no longer dealing with a uh, fundamental liberty that is, quote, deeply rooted in America's history and traditions, um, you know, it is left to the uh, individual states to make those decisions as to what types of abortion regulations will exist and whether or not abortion, like in Oklahoma, will just be completely outlawed, period.
1: Right. right. So you
0: really get into this, like, stark reality of, you know, two Americas. Um, And it's bizarre. I mean, like, we're living in this weird time where, like, we're having uh, haven states and safe safe, safe states like things that are very reminiscent of the um you know of, of of free states and slave states where um southern states had laws that allowed you know slavery to continue and northern states didn't and so we're in this very bizarre paradigm now where there are two Americas when it comes to uh, privacy and autonomy rights in this sure. you know, post-Dobbs landscape that we've been hurled into over the past 30 days.
1: I mean, I don't want to get uh, too into the weeds with history, but I don't know if we've ever had more than or less than two... America's you know, yeah. like we fought a war and then less than two generations later, we fought a civil war and we've been dealing with the consequences of this schism. You know, the schism's just been growing and growing, you know, yeah. but so I, I don't know if you wanted to talk a little bit more about this um, these judicial tests or if I, I did have something to say about this um, idea of rooted in history
0: Yeah. Why don't you jump in? I I think we've covered, you know, what these tests are. And then as we get deeper into the Dobbs opinion, um, you know, we can certainly continue to explore.
1: So essentially Alito in the, in the Dobbs opinion is kind of making a big uh, hurrah about things that are fundamental to the history of Anglo-Saxon law, essentially. Um, Yeah. And, and the thing that um, I find just like bizarre that that nobody is asking this question or that the justices failed to even consider this question women did not have suffrage in the UK or the United States until the 20th century yeah there was no single representative in either of those countries until like you know I think the 1920s in the UK or something or maybe it was like a state legislature in the United States I can't remember the specifics but point is, all of that history, essentially, all of those laws, all of those texts that Alito is is privileging, essentially, are written by and for men, right? So I think when we're starting to talk about democracy, and this is kind of a bigger picture issue, um, and uh, just for, to fill the listeners in, I, I kind of specialize in sociology of law, which is just kind of thinking about how does how does law kind of like, regulate society and what kind of society creates certain laws right so like what's the relationship between society and law and, and how we govern organized life um, and social institutions right So <clears throat> with that I think with a democracy I mean the issue of representation is is really fundamental when we're talking about popular sovereignty. Right. If you don't have representation, essentially, we should be questioning the legitimacy of those insti- of those political and legal institutions. Absolutely. Right? Yeah, absolutely. And so, a big thing here. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So, legitimacy is huge, and and you know, it's predicated on representation. And Alito makes, uh, you know, this whole historical analysis of all of these laws and states and et cetera, et cetera. And it's like, well women didn't have anything to do with that, right? Pregnant people didn't have anything to do with writing those laws. So, I mean, that's a huge problem. Like that's a huge red flag right there. But the other thing that I've, that I've been kind of thinking about is like, what is the, uh, and this gets into kind of conservatism in general and this kind of reverence for history in the past. Like it was also a historically important, for us to be genocidal and to uh you know maintain chattel slavery like sometimes history is just wrong sometimes history is just bad guys yeah. so what is the test that we need to establish to say okay this history actually like isn't a good part of like having men regulate pregnant people's bodies is not a good history guys or like maybe that's the kind of question that we should be asking But originalism doesn't allow us to ask those questions. Yes. Originalism does not uh, really allow us to ask certain kinds of questions. And that's actually really important. Right. And uh, one other thing that I wanted to talk about is just like the... of the epistemological foundations of conservatism. And and for the listeners who don't know that fancy term, it's just like the the way that we think about the world. How is knowledge kind of constructed in uh, conceptual categories that we use to think about the world, right? So I think for conservatism or for conservatives in general, and I say this, having studied the so-called intelligentsia of, of the right for quite a long time, and I'm using that term intelligentsia very loosely for, <laughs> for some of these for some of these people, but uh, um, there is a kind of reverence. Stephen Miller's not
0: a luminary. <laughs> no,
1: uh, um, there, I think there is a kind of reverence for history that just because something is in a tradition, therefore it is authoritative and legitimate. Right. Right. So that's very different than how like you or I would think about this. Right. We would think, no, there has to be, you have to have a kind of critical consciousness to ask certain questions in the first place. Right. So one of those questions would be how legitimate were all of these laws that you're privileging so much, say, but he's not asking that. Right. And I think it's because like they're the kind of right word. Um, originalist epistemology is a little bit different. And, and that's kind of, for me, where the real danger is, is just certain questions become rendered unaskable, you know, certain yeah. things become unthinkable because you have a certain way of viewing the world that essentially construct, constructs a very specific idea of authority and historical legitimacy. Right. And sh-
0: and shapes the outcome of
1: Supreme Court opinions, Exactly. Yes. Yeah. So I, yeah, I mean, I I don't want to get too into the weeds with originalism at some point we should talk about that maybe in a, in another episode, but uh, yeah. Yeah. I think for, for this though, I think those, those are a couple of really important questions that we want to ask, but also I think um, our social reality has changed drastically you know historically like we are dealing with climate catastrophe thermonuclear war like capitalism the rise of multinational organization multinational corporations right all of those things like fundamentally reshape the nature of politics and society and the economy right
0: yeah
1: and you don't like his like of course you know, the founding fathers weren't thinking about these issues because they weren't issues at the time, right? So it's also kind of a question of why should we have so much reverence for a history that didn't have to deal with the reality of our situation? It's, it's a matter of like a, a shift in political ontology, right? There are certain things that are that are fundamentally um, a part of our world today that was not a part of the world in the past, right? And so how would an originalist deal with that? Essentially, we're seeing this in Dobbs, right? How does an originalist deal with that? Well, they say it's just not, you don't get those constitutional protections, right?
0: Yeah, um, unless it's the the constitutional protection that conservatives and originalists want to recognize. Right,
1: unless it's the right to bear arms and just carry a gun wherever you want to go. (laughs) Anyway, inside the house, inside the
0: house, heller, outside the house. And then AR-15s, yeah, throw those
1: in. Which, by the way, way, just to show you the kind of intellectual bankruptcy of of the conservatives on the court right now, like there was a whole like set of laws throughout the country that did regulate guns, you know, and then it was just overturned by the Supreme Court where they were like, nope, you get a, you can, you have a right to self-protection.
0: Were the textualists on you know the first phrase in the clause a well-regulated militia um, followed yeah. by a, oh yeah by a conjunction? So no,
1: again, that that's just like again the intellectual bankruptcy. It really infuriated me reading the Dobbs opinion where I was just like, wait a minute, let's apply this to the Second Amendment now,
0: <laughs> right now, <laughs> like, yeah, or
1: or, or or even
0: or even you know uh, like like for starters, you know, like we'll go from textualism and then we'll go to originalism, like from a textualist you know deciding whether or not a football coach like has you know like whether or not the constitution recognizes the right for a football coach to proselytize and lead a prayer on a public high school football field at halftime like i'm pretty sure that's not there but then even for originalism you know um there certainly were not public schools with football fields where people could bow down on one knee in front of a bunch of helmeted and shoulder padded young men uh, to, you know, say a prayer as well. You know, oh yeah, but we will uh, compare that to uh, the pilgrims and the Puritans, you know, uh, congregations at Plymouth, Um, very similar. But it's just, you know, it goes back to this whole like notion of like what originalism allows
1: justices to do it allows them to cherry pick and uh, just um maybe we should be uh actually talk about this a little bit for the listeners um originalism is the idea that essentially like whatever um is written in the constitution but also interpretations of the constitution have to kind of adhere to the kind of standards of that period of the you know of the 18th century for example like what was there what was the meaning that they were using for certain words what was the intention right. for a lot of these things but you know it all goes back to like you know 18th 17th century jurists what were they talking about how did they understand these concepts so it's almost like historical um i mean we're they're, they're perfectly fine shackling us to history you know
0: well well f- fake history a certain version of history a certain yeah. version of history that you know does not take into account you know um, the subjugated populace that you know has a very different perspective on his what's historically accurate it's the hi- it's 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 worse than Victor's history it's history chosen by bathrobe wearing un- unelected um you know, politicians who sit on a court—it's
1: that type of history. It's history light, right? And just we can contrast that with another um, legal interpretative framework of like living constitutionalism is just kind of saying like the meaning of the of the Constitution, the meaning of constitutional law changes over time. We understand right. it differently given the the social context of that era. For example, climate catastrophe. Um, the issue of uh, assault rifles and a lack of mental health um, um, resources for people like, you know, like for us, the Second Amendment and the right to bear arms has fundamentally changed. And the living constitutionalist would say, well, our understanding of the Constitution and constitutional law, it, like it's appropriate to kind of understand it in the context of today's problems and, and today's that, understanding of the, of these words. So, so it, it's that,
0: and also, you know, the idea of sort of popular constitutionalism, for example, um, popular constitutionalism takes the constitution as a living document, which is what you're describing. Um, but it goes one step further. It says, not only do we have this living Constitution that we can use as this in, this interpretive tool um, that is uh, loaded with potential to discover new freedoms, to discover new liberties, new fund new fundamental rights that um, will help us evolve uh, over the course of time as society right. changes. Right, but it goes it goes a little bit beyond that. You know, it, it's this idea that. The Constitution stands for something. It is a tool that carries a vision that helps Mm -hmm. us create a certain type of society. Exactly. So for for Jefferson, the Constitution was a mechanism that would help create an ideal agrarian society. Mm -hmm. For the Federalists, uh, Hamilton, the Constitution will help us create the archetypal commercial society that would bring prosperity and wealth, you Mm -hmm. see and so what originalism does is it robs the Constitution, its text, its history, its use as an interpretive document, it robs it of these potentialities, right? And the, right. Reason, the reason it does that is it doesn't offer a vision of what this society could be. It offers a retrograde vision of what this society was at a halcyon era that is called
1: the founding. A, a I mean, it's an idealized. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like enough, not, n- none of the founders were originalists, you know, like. Yeah. Um, But like, so I, I just to highlight, like, the importance of these uh, jurisprudential interpretations, like. N- so you have multiple interpretations, right? It's yeah. not a neutral thing. I can't stress this enough. Like, what was it last summer? Amy, Amy Coney Barrett was at the, like. Uh, Mitch McConnell center at some law school, at somewhere. And she was talking about like, you know, the neutrality of justice says, my brain just melted. And, like, <laughs> ah, yes. did, uh, you know, yeah, I, that, I, that think, exploded. I think that they believe that. And, and that's like, that terrifies me that law school students don't have to develop that critical consciousness that we would in sociology, for example. Right. right? Yeah. It, it really worries me that there are, I, the I do
0: you know, like, I,
1: I, or the hard sciences, right? I don't think that they're bad faith actors. Like they they might be, but I, I think that they kind of believe that. And it's just like, no, holy shit. You, it's not, these have political ramifications, right? right? Yeah. They have ramifications over people's livelihood, their bodies, their health, their security. Like this right. is not a neutral thing. I can't stress that enough. And that like, oh. and that I think that, I hope that people are seeing this now with the, uh, you know, um decline of of people's like trust in scotus right i think maybe they're starting to see that it is a political institution and so right. you know in later right. episodes we might want to talk about like how did we get here with mitch mcconnell and conservative uh um legal strategies to kind of pack federal courts and state courts with conservative justices As- to
0: absolutely. Kind of reshape
1: the judiciary
0: to reshape the judiciary and utilize the judiciary to create a certain type of um, social order, you know, right. a certain type of ordered liberty, right?
1: Yeah, exactly. Like right. who's but who's, who's ordered, ordered
0: liberty? Yeah, and the type of ordered liberty that is beginning to emerge. Um, and you know, we have a few minutes left here on on, on this first episode, but um, let's talk about the type of ordered liberty that is beginning to emerge now that we have this six to three conservative majority on the supreme court which is really the product of you know several decades of the right organizing to create this very moment this is where the planets have aligned for uh the for 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 conservatism
1: right right? well so yeah, bef- before we go though, maybe you can talk a little bit about what you see as the implications for yeah. this case, and also maybe talk a little bit about Thomas's concurring opinion, which is, which, which far is more ter- which is terrifying. Yeah. Like I mean, it, what it, a it, goon Thomas is! <laughs> like, <laughs> I, know it.
0: I know it. You you could ju- you could just picture him, you know, next to Amy Coney Barrett and Kavanaugh, you know, um, just just pray, praying the sin away. Um, yeah. But one of the things that is really um, terrifying, terrifying from a civil rights perspective, which is you know sort of um, you know where my practice is, um, is the way in which substantive due process is now it is now under threat, and the way so many other fundamental rights that we have come to rely on and expect in this country are. Now potentially on the chopping block, as the Supreme Court uh, Dobbs ruling essentially says, whoa, 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 whoa! If that right is not deeply rooted in America's history and tradition, that is not a fundamental right at all. And so, just like looking at the list, like it's not like these fundamental rights have been recognized forever. Like this really started like in 1937, you know, with the Caroline Products case. the rights that have been recognized since then are the rights that you know we we think about, um, such as the right to marry a person of a different race. That's the famous Loving v. Virginia case. You know, I, I wonder how that comports with you know Ginny and Clarence, but um, also other rights like just like the right to marriage. You have uh, a couple cases arising out of um, prisoners' rights claims. I think in like the late 1980s. Uh, where prisoners are saying, hey, you know what, we have a right to marry while we're incarcerated. And the Supreme Court, you know, recognizes the right to marriage while in prison. That's the famous Turner v. Staffley case. Um, 1960s, you have the whole battle over contraceptives. Uh, 1965, Griswold v. Connecticut. Um, The right to reside with relatives, the right to make decisions about your child's education. The right to not be sterilized without your consent. Mm-hmm. The Skinner v. Oklahoma case. And so it's like all of these rights that we have come to take th- that have been taken for granted are under threat under this new um under under this new uh Dobbs decision. Because what happens is these decisions set forth precedents, and those precedents are then utilized when deciding future cases. And pivoting into you know, Clarence Thomas's concurrence, one of the things that Clarence Thomas says is absolutely frightening. He talks about some of these rights, like the right to contraceptives, the right to, to marriage, and the right to, um, to, to gay marriage, which is the Obergefell case. He questions the foundations of those cases as well. Mm -hmm. And the reason he questions the foundations of those cases is if Roe was decided wrong in 1973 on the grounds that there is not, in fact, a right that is deeply rooted in America's history and traditions. Right. They're going to construct a history very similar to what we saw in Dobbs, which talks about like witch burning and weird stuff in like the 1300s, they're going to construct there, uh, you know, a parallel history whereby um, the right to gay marriage did not exist at the time of the founding, the right to gay, ma- the, right. the right to, um, you know, intim- intimate uh, sexual acts, you know, like the Lawrence v. Texas case didn't exist at the time of the founding. And you can see the potential for a snowballing effect to bring this country back, you know, 150 years as substantive due process rights continuously erode. That's what's
1: so right. So just to be clear, basically what Thomas would want is to roll back those rights as not constitutional guarantees, throw it back to the so-called, you know, democratic process people. Yeah. Of those states. Right. Um, so, you know, if, if, uh, you know texas or any of these red states want to get rid of gay marriage you know they that's it's not a constitutionally protected thing anymore states want to criminalize
0: if they want to criminalize it they can do it that's what's scary so that's
1: yeah this is what's kind of um terrifying about the dobbs opinion and also what's so revealing about thomas's concurring opinion is that I, I think that Thomas, and correct me if I'm wrong, he seems to just have, like, the the confidence to just say <laughs> what their project is, whereas everybody else, like, is kind of playing by the rules where it's kind of like a gentleman's game and, like, we'll kind of couch these things and, like, you know, strict scrutiny and uh, stare decisis and all of this stuff. I mean, Thomas, at least Alito made a distinction, you know, but... Thomas is just like, nah, man, we're getting rid of all of it. And yeah. states get to do whatever the fuck they want to do. I mean, that's <laughs> that's kind of like what the the potential, anyways. The poten- that's kind of what I think Dobbs it, why it's so um, paradigmatic.
0: Yeah,
1: um, because it's kind of establishing a new um, a new course for the court. Yeah. And yeah. I, I definitely in another podcast or another episode want to talk about Supreme Court reform. I think we should talk about that for sure.
0: Absolutely, because well, I, I think,
1: like, you have to start dealing with the issue of of we have one third of the of our government. You know, we have the executive, the legislative, and the judiciary. One third of it has effectively been co opted. Yeah, and so what can be done about that? Well, there are actually reforms that can be that we can consider, and, and it should be on episode. The
0: table. And on a future episode, um, we'll explore judicial reforms. Um, and you know, there's actually a long history of it. So with that being said, um, there is a way forward. There are options that are available. Judicial reform is something that this country has a long history of engaging in. You know, we need to look no further than, um, Franklin Delano Roosevelt's, uh, threats to, to pack the court. Mm-hmm. But I think for now, really to summarize where we're at is, um, I think you described it quite accurately. There has been this paradigm shift and we are living through it right now. And that paradigm shift has really demonstrated two things. First, that the substantive due process rights, as we've been discussing this episode, are, um, under the most existential threat that they have been in, um, in this country's history, and secondly, the practices that got us here, and the judicial in the forms of judicial interpretation, i.e., textualism and originalism, um, ought to stand up to um, you know a critique of their legitimacy. And I think on future, mm-hmm. uh, you know, on future conversations, we can explore that too, because it's high time that we begin to question um, the legitimacy of doctrines that put us in it, it put us in this situation um, absolutely so, so that being said i think that that's a wrap for um for today's episode um and we look forward to speaking with you guys again
1: thanks for listening thanks for checking the homo juridicus yep until next time